welcome back to another episode of Real Conversations About Aging Parents. I have Nisa here with me. Hi, Nisa. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. No, thank you for being here. I am really excited to have you. You're going to bring a new perspective we haven't talked about uh, quite yet on the podcast. And um, that's going to be us exploring the role of self-compassion, mindfulness, and those types of tools um, to help ourselves when we're in the middle of a stressor or a grief response or things like that. And I know you have a lot of experience with that, but before we dive in, can you tell me a little bit more about yourself, like where you're from and and what kind of work you do? Sure. Yeah. I am in San Jose, California, and I grew up about 20 minutes North of here. And I did all of my education and training in Los Angeles. I became a psychiatrist and I have a private practice. I see adults uh, dealing with anxiety, mood disorders, ADHD. I do medication management and psychotherapy. I went to a psychiatry residency that was very heavily psychotherapy based, which is different from a lot of psychiatry residencies nowadays, which focus a lot on medication management. And uh, during my training, I was meditating a lot. Mindfulness really helped me personally with some of the challenge that I went through. And so I started to get training and incorporate mindfulness into my clinical care. I later became a yoga teacher. And last year, I came out with a book called Practicing Stillness, which is a introductory guide to meditation and yoga with psychotherapy principles weaved throughout. And I became a life coach last year as well. And I have uh, group coaching programs that are all around meditation and yoga because I have found these to be very helpful in my life. You sound very, very busy. (laughs) (laughs) I am. That's a lot. Uh, what kind of hobbies do you have outside of all of those <laughs> yeah, very so, intensive endeavors? <laughs> so I uh, have a 10 and 12 year old sons and we love being physically active. So um, a lot of sports and we uh, go snowboarding. Uh, my youngest snowboards and my oldest skis. And I, I used to ski and I now I snowboard. Um, I just find getting into my body is very healing. So, yeah, yeah. And we'll talk, well, obviously that's what we'll be talking about today. So um, let's talk first just about the definition of self-compassion. Like, what does that mean? Yeah. So self-compassion is a commitment to ourselves. It, from my standpoint, it's a commitment to show up with kindness and sensitivity for ourselves throughout our lives. So sometimes it can be really easy for us to be compassionate for to towards ourselves when things are going well, when we're accomplishing goals, but it can be very difficult to be compassionate for ourselves when we're going through difficult times or when we're dealing with big difficult emotions. And so, you know, having that commitment to continue to show up for ourselves with love and kindness and sensitivity and 
knowing that it's not always going to be easy, but continuing to show up for ourselves. And um, as far as if somebody can know if they're um, practicing self-compassion or like, is there like a meter or like, how do you know where somebody is on that spectrum of being very compassionate with themselves or not? Is it, is it kind of individualized or do you have an idea of like, no, if they're talking this way to themselves, then they're practicing good self-compassion. I think you're absolutely right. I think it's very individualized. I'm sure that we've all had the experience of making a mistake, whether we're spilling something or we forgot a meeting or we forgot an object somewhere. And sometimes the first impulse is to be unkind or mean or critical to ourselves or be very judgmental or create a negative self-narrative about who we are because of a mistake that we made. And so sometimes, you know, even though other people may not see this, like our internal narrative can be very critical and harsh with ourselves. And it makes me think of something uh, like your opinion on this. Um, It feels as if when people are um, being negative with themselves, they're like, you know, oh, I shouldn't have made that mistake or I should have prevented this, that that's almost a fuel for them. It's like a fuel source that they use that to motivate themselves or they use the fear of, of, of confirming this as true. But when we're dealing with aging parents, it's like that fuel source does not last very long because there's a lot of things well outside of your control, well outside of your capacity to manage. And especially as physicians, I think we kind of, you know, bull in a China shop into these things and think, well, what's the next thing I need to plan and control? And, um, and, and then if this isn't going right, then I'm already back to what I did wrong, but we've missed the entire point of sort of that living through that or being present. And so I wonder, um, thinking about it as a fuel source. So if you're living in self-compassion, then what is fueling your actions and behaviors? If it's not, you know, all of the things that we hammer ourselves with. Yeah, I, um, I've had that experience and I've had a lot of people share that experience that, we often tend to rely on fear and often like fear of unkindness or criticism as a motivator. And it does work. <laughs> it's not an, a very enduring motivation. You know, I, I think of life more as a marathon than a sprint and fear, I think, can motivate us, but it's an exhausting motivator. Like it's a depleting motivator. And I think a lot of that comes from our conditioning, you know, sometimes our, you know, people that loved us or raised us, maybe they felt like the best way to motivate us to do well was, you know, a fear of criticism or a fear of um, not getting praise or love or celebration or what have you. And so we've internalized a lot of that conditioning. And so sometimes we use that sometimes unconsciously to motivate ourselves to do well, but unfortunately it kind of uh, ultimately backfires because it depletes us of our resources and it's not very enduring. And so we can get very exhausted and burnt out. And then it's very difficult for us to show up in a lasting way. 
So it sounds like you kind of have to become your own supervisor of the narrative to kind of know where you're living as far as how <laughs> on the self-compassion meter, like does just to sound kind and compassion or does this sound like you're an asshole? <laughs> like, <laughs> is that kind of how it works? <laughs> yeah. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's a little bit difficult because so many of us really motivate ourselves out of fear. And so sometimes that's all we know. And it's kind of like fish in water, right? So like fish are always in water, so they don't realize they're in water. And so sometimes we're so used to, this habitual motivation out of like fear of criticism or unkindness that we just do it and we don't really know any other way. And so it's, it can be really difficult to even become aware of. And then once we become aware of it, it can be kind of overwhelming because we're like, oh my God, it's everywhere. And so I think it's um, just, you know, first building an awareness. And I think that's, where the mindfulness piece really helps because mindfulness is a kind, non-judgmental awareness. Because sometimes when we are unkind to ourselves, we're unkind to ourselves for being unkind to ourselves. Like we layer like <laughs> judgment. Imagine that, yeah. <laughs> we layer judgment on top of judgment, you know? So we're like adding more of the problem to try to fix the problem, which doesn't doesn't work out so well. And so that's why it's really important with mindfulness to remember that it's a, a kind, non-judgmental awareness. And when we can shine that kind, non-judgmental non awareness, it's easier for us to see these patterns. And then as we see these patterns, we feel them in our bodies. Like when we're being really mean and unkind and critical and impatient with ourselves, it doesn't feel good. Like we feel the tension in our muscles and we feel maybe guilt or shame. And the more we shine the light of awareness on this and, and then we try different, we try on different techniques like self-compassion practice. And then, and then we're like, oh, this feels better. And what, what would that look like trying on that technique? Yeah. So there's so many different self-compassion practices. Uh, my favorite is the self-compassion break. Uh, Kristen Neff came up with this practice. You can, you know, Google it or watch it on YouTube. But the reason I love it so much is it's a very accessible practice that you can take with you everywhere you go. And we do it particularly when we're overwhelmed with big, difficult feelings. And as I was talking about before, those are the times where practicing self-compassion is so important and so difficult. And so uh, in the self-compassion break, when, you know, if you're moving throughout your day and you're feeling very overwhelmed, whether it's like fear, anxiety, panic, irritability, anger, frustration, sadness, despair, like the more challenging emotions. What I like to start with is the soothing touch piece. So holding your hands, giving your hands like a squeeze. If you're around other people, you can do this in your lap and nobody needs to know that you're doing this. Um, or, you know, if you're alone, you can give yourself a hug or put your hands on your heart or one hand on your heart, one hand on your belly. And the reason I like to start with the soothing touch piece is because sometimes the rest of this practice is mostly like verbal and language based. And sometimes when we are overwhelmed with big emotions, the, the cognitive verbal piece isn't landing. Like we're, we can be so upset that it, it really isn't helpful. 
But this physical piece releases oxytocin. And this goes back to when we were, you know, uh, even in our mom's bellies or when we were newborns, that's love that we first knew was physical, right? And so sometimes that's easier to access the self-compassion through this physical piece. And so I would hold the soothing touch throughout this practice. And then there's uh, three parts to it. So there's the mindfulness piece. So starting out with just kind of like affect labeling or just noticing, you know, like there is anxiety or there's sadness or there's frustration. And you might want to say there is instead of I am, because I am can be a very kind of like self-defining narrative, like a label, whereas there is, it's more, it brings this awareness that all of these emotional states are temporary. And so you just kind of label what's going on for you. You might notice where you feel it in your body. And the second part of this is common humanity. So let's say that, you know, you are taking a parent to an appointment and let's say the parent is uh, dealing with dementia of some kind and, and they don't remember, you know, where, where you're going and it, you just become overwhelmed, you know, with sadness or grief or what have you. And so the common humanity piece is realizing that you're not the first person to deal with this challenge and you won't be the last. That in fact, there's millions of people around the world dealing with this exact same mm-hmm. situation right now. Right, right. You know, and so realizing the common humanity, because sometimes in these situations where we're overcome with really challenging emotions, we feel so alone because sometimes we don't share those emotions. But just remembering that we're not alone, even if we feel alone, we're not alone. And then the third piece is the kindness or the compassion piece. And this is saying something kind to yourself. And this is very individual. People say things like, I love you, you're doing awesome, or this is temporary, this will pass. Um, My favorite thing to say is speaking to myself, I'm here for you. I promise I'll continue to show up. I'm sorry if I abandoned you in the past. I love you and you're doing awesome and I'm here for you. Wow. I I appreciate you sharing that. I hadn't heard that about the the touch, but I can see that helping, you know, just about anybody, you know, from children all the way up to like just in our lifetime. And we do need extra tools to harness the nervous system, the central nervous system that has some built-in pathways that we are not using, <laughs> especially when we're just so focused on our devices. And that, like you mentioned, the muscle, the muscle tension, like the actual form of our bodies has sort of collapsed around the thing, literally right in front of us, like a phone. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, uh, we see this, like the therapist, uh, occupational therapists talk about this is just that, you know, that there are the range of motion, even our shoulders and our elbows and, it's just so much less because we're so crunched into this. They call it the one cubic foot right in front of you um, where all this is happening and like getting out of that. And you talk a lot about, you know, stretching and yoga and maybe some of that's just even the physical retraction from that very small world that we have now, which is again, that little one cubic foot in front of us. So you can talk a little bit about, um, you know, body movement and where you think that comes in. Absolutely. That's why I love yoga so much. Um, I 
for most of my life, I have been very cognitive. Like I feel like most of my identity is just like my neck up and my head. Like I'm always in my head. I'm always thinking about like a million things that happened in the past and a million things that are going to happen in the future. And for a long time, it was really difficult for me to feel fully embodied. You know, a lot of people that go through trauma in their lives they they don't feel fully embodied, whether it's because you're experiencing, um, you know, difficult emotions in your body that feel too overwhelming. And so a lot of us, especially, you know, physicians or other professionals, we have a strong defense of intellectualization that when we are dealing with these big emotions in our bodies, we escape to our thoughts because thoughts have always been safe. You know, we did well in school, people praised us for how we did. And so a lot of us, like our thoughts was a safe place, but sometimes we get out of balance and we rely too much on cognitive and intellectual strengths. And then we don't feel fully embodied and people ask us how we're feeling and we just respond with a thought. You know, I can't tell you how many times a day I ask somebody how they're feeling and they give me a thought because really feelings are one word. If someone asks you how you're feeling and you're like, oh, I'm feeling like I don't want to go to the gym today. That's a thought, right? right. <laughs> a, feeling, a feeling is like one word. And we just, you know, we have a lot of difficulty. We're not taught that in school growing up. There's not a lot of, you know, education on emotional intelligence. And yoga has been this way for me to get back into my body and, and, and into the present moment because our bodies are always here now. Our bodies are never right, in the right. past or the future, but they're always right here right now. And the present moment is the only moment that we ever have, but we spend so much time in our heads, like thinking about the past or anticipating or worrying about the future that we miss the only moment that we ever have in yoga though often when people talk about yoga they're talking about like the physical or asana practice but there's actually eight limbs of yoga which include things like ethical precepts breath work uh, meditation enlightenment and uh, for me yoga first initially was just like very much getting into my body and like getting and staying in the present moment because the yoga kind of almost like made me stay in the present moment because if I'm not doing that I'm just like constantly in you know my head lost in concepts and so I whenever I can I try to uh even if I'm like sitting at my desk for a long time like you can just get on your hands and knees and do some like cats and cows or like you know you can just do some stretches in your chair right now if you can if you're not driving you can interlace your fingers and like raise them above your head, put them out in front of your chest, you know, do some seated cats and cows. And it it's like amazing sometimes how healing that can be. Yeah. I, I appreciate you sharing that. I did want to circle back to something you mentioned. Um, you mentioned people, you know, if they have a history of trauma and maybe that informs how they um, interact with themselves or other people. And I, and I, what I hear a lot having these conversations over and over again about aging parents is there's a lot of generational differences in what you talk about or what you don't talk about. And then also um, a, a strong tradition of enduring trauma and then never mentioning it. Um, and uh, I think uh, towards the end of a lifespan, a lot of this can come up. And I know it did for my grandmother um, and she disclosed a lot of trauma, like right at the end of her life that nobody had known about, but 
once once it was said out loud and there was so much shame with that then it actually made people understand other parts of her life better but at, like at the very last minute you know what i'm saying and so um i think a lot of people see their parents almost as a black box in that way because their parent had to be a strong and together human being maybe not, i might not be that as a parent in this generation but at least the people that are a generation ahead of me um, can be that kind of black box. Like they, they aren't vulnerable. They don't discuss their emotions a lot, but when you go through a very emotional connection, whether that's um, a sudden illness, a new diagnosis, um, then suddenly that, that lack of vulnerability or that openness that can be very challenging. Do you have any tips or uh, lessons learned working with people through those types of things? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of what I've been talking about really applies here, you know, um, staying grounded in your body, you know, so a, a very common mindfulness practice is just grounding into your body. So right now, like if you are sitting down or lying down or standing somewhere, can you feel the places in your body that are in contact with the surfaces that are supporting you, whether that's in your feet or the length of your back or just um, on, on um, you, you know, your seat and, you know, coming into the, the present moments, so like being very present with someone and practicing compassionate for yourself. So if something is very overwhelming, like maybe giving your hands a squeeze or saying something kind to yourself. And also trusting that being present for someone and just listening is one of the most healing things that we can give someone else. Like so many of us are so conditioned to try to fix things for other people like give them advice like solve it you know and I can't tell you just how just sitting being grounded in your body and just letting just listening you know because if your grandmother never shared that before you know and this is like at the end of her life you know if you can just sit and listen and be present with compassion for her, like what a huge gift that is. Well, and I like that you said that because I feel like that is an area of life that feels a high level of uncertainty and a lot of variables that you can't control and the drive to fix and control and, and influence. And, um, and you can get very quickly down into the details of like, well, that person, um, so if you're dealing with an aging parent, well, they should be going to the doctor regularly and they should be taking their medications on time and, and they should, and they should, and you could should them to death. Right. <laughs> and then it's like, um, but it doesn't necessarily, um, create any form of connection, but it, it like almost gives that body, like the, or the brain, the idea that they're doing something, but, mm -hmm. but perhaps like, because sitting there and, and holding space and listening for a lot of people does not feel like you're doing anything, but but from your standpoint and, and your background, I think it's important just to, to like take that and emphasize that that is enough. I mean, it doesn't, it might not feel like enough. You might feel like they're disappointed in you. And, and most of the time they're just happy somebody's on the receiving end, right? Well, and I think it's more than just enough. I think it's one of the most generous things that we can give anyone, you know, whether it's, you know, aging parents or our own children or colleagues or patients, 
to just be fully present with somebody as they share emotions. I think it's, you know, you mentioned, because like a lot of us, I think we fall back into, you know, wanting to control. And I think that's what a lot of like worry and planning and anticipating is and wanting to fix things for other people or having an idea that we know what somebody else, you know, is best for somebody else. And just trusting that that we can just be present for them. One of my favorite quotes that I just referenced recently is Liz Gilbert. Uh, She said, you're afraid to surrender because you don't want to lose control, but you never had control. All you had was anxiety. And I love that quote because control is such an illusion. Like we do that, you know, we try to control things, but none of us have any control. <laughs> what, right. But what we do have is anxiety, you know? And so that quote reminds me when I'm like scrambling to control things, it reminds me I don't have control, but I am just causing like myself anxiety. Right, right. So do you, um, and I, I think that ties back to that practice of mindfulness and discerning like a practice of, of discerning in any given drama that you're having in your head, what falls within the realm of my capacity to control or not. And you'd be shocked. I think if you sorted how little is actually in the, you know, what I can control in this moment right now. And I wonder if just kind of cluing into that every once in a while might help kind of contain some of the unbridled anxiety and, um, frustration, honestly, that comes with, you know, oh, I tried to control this outcome. Oh, they got sick again. Oh, they went back in the hospital and Mm -hmm, they weren't supposed mm -hmm. to fall, but then they did fall. Oh, now they have a hip fracture and, and it it just keeps going. And I feel like the last thing you need when these things are happening is your own personal narrative running that, that we didn't control it enough. That's why this happened. Right. Exactly. Can you comment a little bit on that? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think there is so much to say in response to that. I think that, like you said, there's so little that we have control over and the control is such an illusion for us. And I think if we can instead, like you said, ground into the mindfulness and the compassion for ourselves, and the compassion for other people and just show up and be present for people and and experience all the feelings because I think controlling is also a way that we avoid difficult feelings like avoid feeling the difficult feelings and if we can remind ourselves to ground fully into our bodies and move through these feelings and stay present in our bodies and trust that they're temporary like all things like like our lives are temporary and just trust that we can bear it all and we can we can also trust uh, other people's intuition and wisdom and also trust kind of the universe's wisdom like how many times in our lives that we felt like oh this is the best thing like this really should happen and then something else happens and we're like oh thank goodness what i wanted didn't happen that would have been terrible sometimes we don't see something and you know in reflection it was really in fact something else that we needed 
What in, one of my favorite questions for my own brain to kind of bring it back to uh into like the realm of reality is um is asking it what if this is already decided yeah right because the, the idea is that we're in this like totally free zone where we control all these things and and we are deciding for the universe but but there are, are a lot of philosophies in the world that and i don't mean this in like a predetermination type way just this idea that it it's decided it's going this is this is how this happened and how do i know it's because that's what happened exactly. right and then being very okay with that and and yeah. living into that and um so one of my favorite stories uh and one of byron katie's book is about this and one of the the comments she had in one of her books was one way that she grounds herself is to watch the step rising to meet her foot and she's like look how amazing it is that i take another i take i move my leg and the step is there again and i move my other leg and the step arises and meets me at just the right time and it carries me all the way up to the second floor and I remember she describing going upstairs as something so mundane, right? And so like, you know, we do this every day and and yet she describes it almost as this extremely exciting journey in that moment of like, well, I'll be damned, this stairwell is gonna get me all the way to the top. And um, and so when I when I get really um anxious and I think, isn't that amazing how the floor meets my foot at the exact right time for me to walk from here to there? Um, and it's almost like getting fanatical is the word I was looking for a fanatical about, um, dropping into what's there in that moment. And I feel like when we talk about aging parents, like I am looking, um, at what what's happened and what shouldn't have happened and then what might happen in the future. And it just takes us immediately out of whatever season we're in with that, that aging parent and whatever time that that is. And, and we see this play out in the hospital systems all the time, right? Like they're in this hospital bed and there's, you know, necessary administrative work, but then the, the anxiety and the fear that sets in removes them from the one person that needs that the most. It's almost this grand irony of what our brains do when just sitting there would probably be as healing as what the doctors are trying to come up with next, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So that's what makes me think of. Um, so I think that's really helpful. Well, do you have any, uh, so you mentioned a lot of uh, practical tips for the self-compassion. Um, can you think of anything else kind of in a daily practice that you've seen be really helpful? So, um, what I'll, I'll just give a plug for, you know, mental health here, right. you know, like, speak to, you know, if you're going through something really difficult with a family member and like, let's say they're bringing up a lot of trauma, you know, maybe they're at their end of their life and a lot of things that they were holding on to and they're sharing it with you and you have a lot of big emotions, you know, um, therapists, coaches, you know, getting the help that you need, because that is the most beautiful way to show up for other people is to take really good care of yourself and to give yourself uh, that outlet to speak as well and to have somebody show up for you and be very present for you. So I think that's an, another huge piece here is to, you know, if to, you know, just like we go to a primary care physician for regular checkups, I really feel like people, you know, whether it's like coaching or therapy, you know, just going uh, and getting a mental health checkup. So yeah, that makes me think of, uh, of another concept, which is, I know how we um, say that, especially like to like new mothers, like it's important to take care of yourself first. And, 
put your oxygen mask mask on first. And, and I feel like it's almost overplayed at this point. And there's some badge of like, okay, well, this is really hard. I just got to get the kids to school on time. But um, when I think about it in the context of aging parents, um, a lot of people feel some of the stress they feel with, with helping an, an aging parent is they'll say things like, I'm the only person in the world who can help them. And then I, I take that comment and say, well, well, certainly if you're the only person in the world that can help them, then you need to be the healthiest person in the equation, right? Like, so if we're, if we're really not, um, if we're like standing 30,000 feet above that, then that's the person you want going to a yoga retreat and getting mental yeah. health <laughs> yeah. because, because, and then, and then it takes you out of it right now. It's not personalized. It's like, well, if, if this is all about supporting them and, and getting them the best support you can muster, then that isn't, that has to be a, a top ingredient for this instead of kind of running into the ground, um, you know, over and over and over again. Absolutely. So my, my two cents about that sentiment that keeps coming up. So, <laughs> but yeah, I, so I think this is really helpful if people, um, wanted to learn more about you or, um, kind of what, uh, some of the things you mentioned at the beginning, uh, where would they be able to find you? Yeah, so I am on Facebook and Instagram under a mindful MD, and you can find my book, Practicing Stillness, on Amazon. And yeah, I, I have a private practice in California. So if you happen to be in California, nice, nice. Well, I hope you have better weather there than Texas. It's just been really hot here. So I'm. I've been jealous of my friends in California, but I, I think this was really wonderful. I, I appreciate you taking the time today to come talk to us. I think that's very helpful. I think that's a unique perspective that that can help people today. So, so thank you so much for your time. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> thank you. Hey everyone, it's Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'd like to take just a moment to review the disclaimer. This podcast is for informational and occasional entertainment purposes only. Nothing discussed here is formal medical, legal, or financial advice. By listening to the podcast, we are not creating a patient-doctor relationship between you and myself or any of the guests. Really, it's just me and a possible guest or two, sometimes three, sitting around talking about difficult topics related to aging parents. If you have or suspect that you might have a medical problem or condition, you should seek advice from a licensed medical professional. If you have any questions or concerns, please read the full disclaimer in the show notes or contact me directly. Thank you again for joining us today. I can't wait to see you next week. Have a good day.